Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I will be speaking with Dan Wagner, founder and CEO of Resolve. Resolve entered into a $1.8 billion combination agreement with Armada Acquisition Corp. 1 in December. It has partnered with some of the world's largest payment processors to provide ad tech tools in China and India with entries into the U.S. and Latin American markets on the horizon. We discuss how mobile advertising is underutilized, particularly by small businesses and why retailers are missing out. Wagner also talks about how Resolve engaged with multiple SPACs, but ultimately narrowed down on Armada One as its partner of choice. Take a listen. So Dan, just to get started, you've had a really long entrepreneurial career at the intersection of marketing, retail, and cloud services. Could you talk a bit about some of your previous background and how that led you to, to found Resolve? Yes. So I started my career in 1984. I started one of the first online information platforms where we digitized newspapers, trade journals, and periodicals, and made them available online for people to interrogate. And you've got to think that back then in 1984, people didn't have PCs, there was no mobile phones, and the internet hadn't been presented at uh, CERN you know, as a concept until five years later in 89. So this was very, very early days. And you know, in order to build and deliver that platform, we had to create our own data centers. We had to create our own commerce tools. Even the word e-commerce wasn't invented for another 11 years. We had to develop our own search technologies and, and develop those in terms of funding projects at various universities to try to understand how to interrogate content you know, with search tools and algorithms and so on. So really at the sort of cutting edge, the forefront of, of what we now know as the internet and we now use daily. And that business went on to become the world leader in online information. Uh, it was listed on NASDAQ in 95, uh, it was listed on the London stock market in 94. And um, you know, we were behind many of the news and content services behind consumer services like MSN. I sold that business in 2000 to Reuters, now Thomson, uh, Thomson Reuters, and moved on. But you know, during that period of 16 years, I would argue that we, we, we developed one of the earliest commerce platforms because we had to take payment for this information and there was no commerce infrastructure. You remember that um, Amazon, for example, was founded 11 years after I started Made Dialogue. So when the dot-com boom happened uh, and I started my second business in 1998, I wanted to create a platform for commerce that would allow merchants and brands to run their e-commerce infrastructure. And I had this kind of idea that it should be run from the internet itself, a kind of out of kind of kilter to the market at the time. It was kind of a bit out there, but the thinking was that instead of brands and retailers buying the infrastructure, the software and the hardware and the expertise to build e-commerce, that we could provide that to them from the internet itself. Now today we call that cloud services or on-demand or software as a service. But back in 1998, that term never existed. And you know, the idea of providing an infrastructure that could serve many, uh, we know today as cloud or on-demand. And Vendor, which is my second company, went on to become a European market leader for e-commerce. And then in the US, we ran retailers, sites like Neiman Marcus, Land's End, uh, TJX companies, Under Armour, J. Crew, LLB, and many others. And after a number of years, <clears throat> I sold that business to Oracle, and it's now called Oracle Commerce Cloud. So those two uh, businesses really, I would argue, were commerce businesses. They were commerce in different forms, but you know, one was more traditional e-commerce that you would you know, understand, but the first one, I would, I'd argue, also some, to some degree was an e-commerce business. So 
as we now move into Resolve, Resolve is a new visionary platform. And really it came about because of my frustration during the time I was running Vendor, where I felt that we weren't doing merchants and brands and retailers a service. We were kind of le leaving them underserved in the context of providing the tools to allow them to communicate with consumers via their mobile phones. Now, for many years, people have talked about M-commerce. They say, well, we are M-commerce, 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 but there's no such thing as M-commerce because today, before Resolve came along, M-commerce was e-commerce packaged to fit a small screen. And that's not M-commerce, that's just e-commerce repackaged for a small screen, okay? Now, the mobile phone is a very sophisticated device. It has incredible capabilities. It has the ability to see things, obviously, through its camera. It has the ability to hear things through its microphone. It has the ability to know where users are. It has the ability to interact with Bluetooth devices and, and, many, and Wi-Fi uh, and other things. And we thought this through and we decided that actually we need to create a new kind of commerce platform that meets the needs of the mobile consumer. And it kind of addresses the problem of mobile commerce you know, in a new way, but it also addresses what we've, what people have been talking about with online to offline and offline to online interaction with consumers, wherever they are, that kind of total blending of physical and digital. And that's what Resolve set out to achieve. So what we did was we've built a new kind of commerce platform designed from the ground up for mobile engagement. And it's made up of a number of triggers, you know, that, uh, that are these images, audio, geolocation zones and beacon, Bluetooth transmitters and Wi-Fi. And sitting behind those triggers are transactions that we allow the merchant to create using a dashboard on the web. So I'll give you an example. <coughs> Excuse me. I'll give you an example, which might be I'm the New York Mets and it's 6 p.m. on a Monday night and there's a game starting in an hour. And I've got 3,000 empty seats in the stadium. With Resolve, I can put a geozone in the local area. I can communicate to people with the uh, New York Mets app and say, hey, we've got some remnant seats. You're only 10 minutes away. We're going to sell these seats to you for half price or for 30% off. Come with your family instead of watching it on TV. You're going to watch it anyway. You're a fan. But we're, you're only 10 minutes away. Come to, come to the stadium. Now, you can't send that communication to everybody with the app because some people might be in LA or Miami or I don't know where, right? All over the States or even internationally. And today, you can't sell those remnant seats an hour before the game. So that's one example of how Resolve allows merchants to interact with people in proximity you know instantly and, and and give them an offer or give them an incentive uh, to buy something that they otherwise wouldn't have thought about doing because they were just about to go for dinner and i think we live today in a very immediate kind of society even even now you know the development of of the gig economy is is driving people's engagement by their mobile phones into sort of instant 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 kind of uh, engagement. You know, I, I need some soy sauce for dinner tonight. I'm not going to go to the market. I'm going to order it on my phone. It's going to be delivered in 10 minutes. I'll pay the 10 bucks, the seven bucks or whatever it is. And this change in the dynamic of, of the way consumers behave, we're tapping into that with this new kind of commerce platform. So think about Resolve as the, the Shopify for mobile. You know, the, it's a new kind of commerce stack designed specifically for mobile engagement. I've seen you describe yourself also as being the last mile in consumer engagement. And, and you've uh, illustrated that very well with those examples. Why do you think there's still that gap there? Is it just that as you're kind of describing that in a way, e-commerce has already bridged this gap, but marketing ha just hasn't gotten there? 
look, I think I think that what's happening is that gap is being bridged. It's being bridged by what we would call intermediaries. You know, you've got Amazon. That Amazon kind of bridges the gap. Um, you know, DoorDash and Uber Eats kind of bridge the gap. But what's happening is that they're taking a big chunk out of traditional retail. Traditional retail is failing. You know, J.C. Penney went bust. Okay, it might be back again. Barnes went bust. I don't know if they're back again. You know, the high street is failing because the high street doesn't is underserved by us. I failed. I, alongside other technology companies, have failed these retailers. Why have we failed them? We haven't given them the tools to run their business properly in today's world. In today's world, those merchants need to be able to talk to consumers on their mobile phones. And what we've seen over the last 15 years is that those consumers are talking to something else. They're looking at their phone. I'm standing in in Macy's and I'm looking at my phone and I'm on Instagram or I'm looking at my phone and I'm searching Amazon or something. I'm searching Google for something. I see something and I go, how much is that on Amazon? You know, that's not, that doesn't work. Okay. That is a broken system. If I'm in the store of Macy's, I should be immersed in the Macy's experience. I shouldn't be on my phone interacting with anything other than Macy's. Macy's should be talking to me through my phone when I'm in their store. And what we've tried to do is we tried to take, bring the power back to the merchant on the high street. Let me give you another example, right? I, let's just take this you know, phantom idea that I run a hardware store on Lexington and 56th in New York City, okay? The hardware store was owned by my grandfather, started in 1922. And then my father took over and now I've taken over, right? And for years, people would come to my hardware store. They would come down from their apartment block on the 14th floor of an apartment block two blocks away. They'd walk down the street and they'd come into my store and they'd buy their light bulbs and their batteries and their I don't know what, right? And then they'd go home. And what happens today? They don't do that anymore. They're never going to leave their flat, their apartment. They're going to pick up their phone and they're going to order their batteries from Amazon and get it tomorrow. They're going to order their, their, their light bulbs from Amazon and get it tomorrow. They organize, you know, everything they're going to buy from Amazon and get it tomorrow. Now, what happens to that hardware store? It cannot survive. It cannot survive on somebody walking past the front of the door and going, oh, I need a light bulb. I'm going to go into this hardware store and get it, right? It does, that doesn't, that's not a sustainable business model anymore, right? Because it's, it's so transitory. It's so, you know, um, of the moment that it can't be sustained. So, you can take a view and say, okay, well, that's over then. You know, the future for those physical retailers is over. I don't believe that. I believe the future of those retailers, there is a future for them. And it just means us providing the kind of solutions that they need. So in my world, that retailer has a geozone over the nearby area. And on Christmas Eve, sends a ping to everybody in the local area and says, if you need tinsel or, you know, baubles for your Christmas tree, we'll deliver them in 10 minutes. Now I go tap, tap, and my baubles arrive, okay? The next time I need life bulbs, I don't wait to a day for Amazon to deliver it. I buy it from Dan's hardware store, from my mobile phone, and he delivers it in 10 minutes. And suddenly you have a connection where that local retailer has two benefits above everybody else. One, immediate delivery or very fast delivery. That's a key value uh, driver against some of the digital platforms. And the second thing is, I'm a local small business owner. And I think that there is a move towards supporting these, these business owners. There is a, a general feeling, warmth towards the community that, that may not have existed over the last 10 years. It's kind of 
been eroded, but I think it's coming back. And I think there is a, a, a genuine feeling. I think it comes with a lot of other changes in people's behavior uh, around community. So this is one of those. And I think that we help that. So we're kind of creating a new dynamic in the market, a very positive dynamic that helps these small business owners engage with consumers directly, but also provides a sense of well-being and goodwill to the people who live in the local community. They, they feel good about that. They'd rather buy from Dan's hardware store than buy from Amazon and get it tomorrow, I believe. And you previously touched upon this, but can you walk us through some of the other triggers in your technology and exactly how it drives transactions? Yes, we have lots of triggers. So I don't, I don't want to go through all of them, but I'll give you some of that was a, all based around geozones, which obviously is a very big driver for proximity-based engagement. Uh, but another example would be print triggers, right? Now, a lot of people think print is over, okay? But I don't. Um, print is on every product label. That is a printed asset, okay? So if I'm sitting at the table eating my cornflakes, um, Kellogg's cornflakes do not know that I am eating their cornflakes. They know that they sell a lot of cornflakes through D'Agostino's and through Walmart and through Target and through, I don't know, whoever, right? They know they sell and how many packets of cornflakes they sell. They also know that over time they're being disaggregated by those retailers, those same distributors are pushing the Kellogg's cornflakes packets to the shelf below and they're putting in the, at the right eye level shelf, the, you know, Walmart, flakes, right? Cornflakes. So they know that their brand is at risk through the same distribution channels that they're relying upon. And they also don't know that Dan Wagner eats their cornflakes. So let's imagine that they put a Resolve water, water mark on their Kellogg's Cornflakes packet. And on the packet, it says, scan every day for a chance to win a million dollars. Now, when I take my Cornflakes packet out and it's sitting on my table in front of me, I've just poured out my Cornflakes and I've poured my milk or my soy milk or my almond milk or my oat milk, depending on what you're into today, right? And I'm starting to eat my cornflakes and I'm looking at the pack and I've got my phone next to me. How difficult is gonna be for me to pick my phone up and scan that packet? I've got a chance to win a million dollars. Would I do it? Of course you're gonna do it. it. Takes a second. Resolve technology allows that to happen. And what happens instantly is that Kellogg's know that Dan Wagner was eating Kellogg's cornflakes in, on 124 West 60th at 7.35 a.m. on Wednesday, the 31st of April, okay? That event provides a lot of data to Kellogg's and it's worth it. Okay, now they might tell me, sorry, Dan, you didn't win the million dollars, but did you know Kellogg's cornflakes is made in organically sourced corn in the, I don't know what, blah, 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 right? Great. So I'm getting some value. I lost my, I didn't get anything. But what happens the next day? The next day, I don't normally have cornflakes every day, but I go, you know what? I've got a chance to win a million dollars. I think I get the cornflakes out again. I get the cornflakes out, I pour it out, I scan it again. I don't get anything, but I get something else. It tells me something else about Kellogg's. It tells me what a great company they are doing this. So what's happening here is a relationship is being developed between me and the brand, which was there before, but the brand didn't know that I was there. It's just one other use case. It's a small example. Obviously, image watermarks work on magazine ads and posters in the street. Now, if I see a poster in the street, I wave my phone over it and I can interact with it instantly and buy the item. That's a better user experience than having to type in the product. So imagine I see Braun Electric Shaver from CVS. I'm not going to pick up my phone. Oh, oh I need a Braun Electric Shaver. I need an electric shaver. My shaver's broken. I need a new one. I'm going to buy that shaver. I don't pick up my phone and go www.cvs.com. 
then navigate to personal hygiene, then navigate to electrical appliances, then navigate to Braun Electric Shaver and buy it. I just don't, nobody does that. They pick up their phone, they go Braun Electric Shaver and they search Google and they end up buying it from Amazon. So CVS stimulated an order from me, but they, they stimulated, but they didn't get the order. It's totally broken. They spent thousands on that ad. They stimulated me as a purchaser. So what Resolve does is it makes that convenience of ordering faster and more efficient for the consumer. The consumer picks up their phone, weighs it over the ad, taps their phone, and they bought the, the, the shaver from CVS. That's a very compelling way to stimulate advertising. That's just another trigger. There are so many of these uh, use cases based upon the different triggers. But fundamentally, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're upending the way in which a merchant can talk to consumers in a way that hasn't been done before. But I think it's fair to say these things have been around. They just haven't been productized properly. Geozones have been around for years. Image recognition and image, image uh, activation have been around for years. Audio has been around for years with Shazam and things like that. But nobody's ever productized it into a commercial, effective way to engage with consumers. And that's what we're doing with Resolve. And it looks like Resolve first launched in the Mexican market before pivoting to China and other Asian markets. So yeah. where is Resolve most active today and how does your business break down geographically overall? A great question. So we did uh, start in Mexico and we pulled out because we signed an enormously valuable contract with the state in China, the state-owned enterprise China UnionPay, which is the largest financial services company in the world, actually, and runs the entire, entire payments infrastructure in China. And today, we're being rolled out to the merchant base by China UnionPay, which has 11 million merchants that they process transactions for. And the last time we announced the numbers in merchants, and it has gone up since then, obviously, is 138,000 merchants were signed uh, in the first year of trading with them, which is you know, kind of extraordinary, but still a tiny proportion of their potential market uh, penetration. And our consumer partner is WeChat. So consumers are able to interact with the merchants with their WeChat app, which our technology is inside. And, and the merchants are able to talk to consumers, but every consumer has WeChat. So there's a, a real symbiotic uh, relationship there. And for most of 2021, 100% of our revenue was coming out of China. But as of today, 65% of our revenue come out of China, and the balance is split across Taiwan and Europe. And we are about to roll back into China, uh, Mexico, and uh, we have plans to roll out in the United States imminently and in other markets in Europe. And, and so on to the business model side, it looks like most of your revenue right now is coming from GeoZone ads, but it, you expect transaction fees to increasingly take a, a greater share of the revenue mix going forward. Could you get into that a bit and what is driving that evolution? Yeah, I mean, I think I think geozones have been have really kind of resonated with merchants, mainly because I think of the COVID crisis that has consumed the world, and retailers have you know started to come back and trying to get consumers back into their physical stores. And geozones is a very effective way of doing that in the ways I described, you know, where people don't actually have to be standing in front of a store to be notified that that store exists and to encourage consumers into those stores. So, so from that perspective. Um, Geozones has been a very, very uh, successful tip of the spear to, to opening up the market for Resolve in, in, in the markets that we serve today, uh, and for obvious reasons, because it helps drive traffic into their stores. And the cost of the Resolve Geozones is a few dollars a day, it's peanuts. So from, from a merchant's perspective, they pay a few dollars a day and they can communicate with people, you know, 300 yards away at a major rail station or, or a major congregation point and bring people to their store. That's a very compelling proposition for them. 
Uh, but transactions are where over the long term we see the vast majority of our revenue being generated and transactions happen because consumers are interacting with those geozones and other examples like the Kellogg's Cornflakes packet and examples I gave you earlier. And that's where we really make our money long term. So our revenue is broken out by what we call activation, which is the creation of a geozone, which is a persistent daily annuity revenue, or the creation of a watermark, which is an annual fee. Or the creation or, or the activation of a, of a Bluetooth beacon, which is a little transmitter uh, that you can put in, in, in physical locations. Those are what we call activation. They, they sort of set the, the item up for interaction. And then the interaction, we charge you know, typically 1% of transaction value, which is very low. Uh, merchants find that almost innocuous. And a nominal fee for interaction, which might be requesting a brochure or requesting a test drive or booking an appointment or joining a loyalty program, those kind of things, which we call CRM. And those engagements, we charge 40 cents every time. So it's a volume play, very much so, based around vast, vast, vast numbers of consumers interacting with geozones or images or audio uh, using our technology. And that's why we have a vision around it, the, it being the Intel inside of mobile engagement. We see Resolve as being persistent across all apps. You know, So Macy's can put our code in their app and McDonald's can put our code in their app and Target can put our code in their app. And although users are still interacting with Target, it's our technology behind the scenes that is helping these things, making these things happen. So to get a bit more into the business, Dan, your partnership with Union Pay also accounts for a majority of your revenue now, but it looks like you've brought in some other large clients. What else can you tell us about how the customer pipeline will look over in the next few years? Ultimately, our customer is the merchant or the brand. Okay, so it's either Kellogg's or it's the Dan's Hardware Store or whatever it happens to be. Those are, those are the people who pay us the activation fees and pay us the transaction fees. But we don't want to put out, you know, hundreds of thousands of salespeople onto the, into, onto the street, knock it on doors. That's not the business that we feel that we're in. And we feel that we can be much more effective by sitting behind large organizations that already have large consumer audiences on their app or large penetration of merchants that they can introduce Resolve to and upsell Resolve into those customers. So, it, so using China as the example, again, we've used two distribution partners, UnionPay, which has 11 million merchants. They are rolling out Resolve to their merchant base, encouraging their merchants to create geozones and so on. And that's proving very, very successful. We did $80 million in revenue last year. We expect to do $219 million as a company in 2022. And, and that's 133% growth here on you, which is you know pretty good actually from, from a standing start. And it's only possible because we're sitting on the back of giants. Okay, it's not possible to do that with your own sales organization without losing a bucket load of cash. You need just almost impossible. So that strategy is very effective. And we've signed, for example, MobiQuick, which is a mobile wallet in India. Now they have 120 million users who use their mobile wallet every day. Now that 120 million, think of MobiQuick as a kind of PayPal equivalent. And so those 120 million users go to the shops and use MobiQuick to pay and they use MobiQuick in their app and pay for bits and pieces and what have you. And tomorrow they wake up and Resolve is now inside the app. And so the next thing that happens is they walk into a geozone or they walk into a, a location, they're encouraged to scan something with their MobiQuick app. And all of that is powered by Resolve. And that's where the transactions come from. So we share the revenue with these partners. We give them a piece of the 1%. We give them a piece of the 40 cents. We give them a piece of the activation fees to help us get into market. And this is proving a very, very successful, very fast way to grow the business in market. 
So we are in the process right now of negotiating with many major partners, and you'll see a couple of big deals coming up that open up markets like the United States and other markets in Europe and Latin America and South America through partnerships with these kind of partners who are typically merchant acquirers or their mobile wallets or their consumer apps. And these partners give us reach, presence, and uh, expand our opportunity. Great. And then sales and marketing expenses also look to be a major expense for Resolve as it ramps up to profitability in 2024. But your materials note that these expenses are co-invested alongside customer agreements. Could you explain how that portion of the agreement works? We typically support partners by providing marketing dollars alongside them. So for example, in the case of UnionPay in China, we're running events on the equivalent of TikTok. Uh, we're running, uh, we, we provide materials to the merchants so that they can promote Resolve to people like window stickers and stickers on the till and things like that. And, and we run training events and, and things like that. So those are the co-marketing efforts that we put in. What is interesting though, is that our capital efficiency, our operating leverage has improved dramatically and we now are going to restate our 2022 numbers uh, in terms of the cost base dramatically down. So we're still going to meet 2019 in revenue, but our cost base is going to be well below the original anticipated expenditure in 2022. Um, and we feel very, very confident that we are going to be much more capital efficient in 2022 and beyond because the way we're now operating the businesses is much more efficient than we originally planned. Uh, it's a real win-win. So, so actually, we're in, we're in a better position than we were. Great. And you mentioned some of these big changes that you see coming down the pike with, with the company over the next several years in terms of milestones and some, some new big areas of, of operation as well. On that timing question, that, you know, why was it uh, that you decided that now is a good time to go public in general? And why did you opt for the, the SPAC route as opposed to IPO or, or just continuing to fund the business uh, privately? SPACs are actually a very, very effective route to market. Um, they, they may not have been given the full credit for this in, in, in recent months, uh, or, you know, but, but actually they're at a very effective route. Why? Because they give a company like ours a, a, a way to solidify valuation metrics and to, to solidify, in some respects, the amount raised in the private sector before you announce. So when, by the time we announce, it's a done deal. We've done the deal. We are a public company. Just there's a couple of uh, months of process before we actually list under the, uh, the ticker symbol zone but we are now a public company we have validated the valuation we have secured the capital now i i've been in an ipo process a number of times both in the two companies that i've founded and and in companies that i've funded or sponsored or whatever over the years and that process of going public is very stressful okay for the entrepreneur incredibly stressful as a difficult process. And what happens is, I mean, you just have to look at what happened recently. You can have a great company going through a process, the market sentiment changes like they did, like it did in January and very good companies had to pull their float. Or you have a good company and just on the day that they're pricing the issue, the market has a correction or there's been some event and they have to change their pricing. In a SPAC process, you don't have that pressure. You can delay a month. You can delay two months. You can do the deal today if you're ready, right? And the whole process is not predicated on what's happening at the minute in the market. Because then once you set that, you then roll the process forward until you list. And so that was what attracted me to the, doing a SPAC transaction. I know that there are other companies that looked at SPAC 
opportunities as a kind of the only way to go to market. We had every option open to us. We could have taken money as a private company at very, very more generous valuations, I should say. Okay, We could have gone for a direct IPO and maybe got a better valuation because we priced this company very, very competitively. We are 55 to 80, 90% discount to our uh, peers, even after the recent market correction in tech stocks. So we're, we're priced very competitively. Why have we done that? Because I feel it's very important that shareholders coming into our stock see the benefit of the growth in the business, are able to see appreciation in their stock, fast appreciation. We don't want to sell this at the top end going into the market and try to get the highest price. And I know that some SPAC transactions have and IPOs have priced things really at the top end of the range. And then they see a reduction in value and people don't like that. I mean, investors don't, I don't want to come into a stock right at the beginning and then see it decline. They want to see the market take it up. So we've done everything we can to make this a really compelling proposition for investors. And we've done it because we, not because we need the money, because we secured the money that we need. Even in the pipe, we just need the pipe money. We don't need anything in the trust funds to deliver our plan. That's how capital efficient we are now. But what we would like to see is that investors come into the stock and see the benefit of participating in this company over the next 12 to 18 months and benefit in the way we've priced by seeing uplift in the stock and benefit by seeing the momentum in the business, which is quite extraordinary, actually. Obviously, you have plenty of public company experience as well. But you know, what did what was the, the process like when you began engaging with Armada? And, and what do you think that their, their side of the deal brings? Well, we, we engaged with a number of SPACs. There was quite a lot of interest in Resolve, if I'm honest with you. And, um, and we, we chose Armada, if I'm honest with you, because of Betsy Cohen. Betsy Cohen is, in my view, and I met her a few times, of course, and she invested in Resolve. I have a very, very high regard for her. Uh, aside from the fact that she's, she's an entrepreneur, experienced and respected entrepreneur in fintech and banking, but also because she has been so active in the SPAC market and been so successful. And we felt that being part of her franchise and being part of her was a good thing to do. And so that was a big driver for us. Now, Steve and Doug at Armada have experience in, in running enterprise technology businesses and you know have a, a very good track record. Of course, that's very additive. The team around them are extremely strong. That's also very additive. Uh, but fundamentally, it was, the, it was the Betsy factor that drove us over the line. And then just looking further ahead, Dan, what are the next things on the technology side that you're most excited about? Is it integrating crypto payments or perhaps some other advances in the product? Uh, yes, in integrating a crypto exchange in real time as a, as a consumer places an order with a merchant that doesn't have any interest in crypto and providing a real time exchange for a Bitcoin or Ethereum transaction from the consumer's wallet uh, into, a, into a fiat uh, you know, traditional currency transaction with the merchant is something that I think is a, a very compelling uh, additive. But I think our primary focus right now, although that's very that's a very interesting sort of additional benefit, I think our primary focus is is increasing our geographic footprint. I mean, we think that we've got the golden ticket here. You know, we think we're holding the golden ticket to one of the most exciting tech businesses on the planet today. Now, I know that's a bit of an ambitious statement, but fundamentally, well, you know, having been in the business for so long, having seen uh, companies that I've created become market leaders in various markets, 
I have a sense about Resolve, which is above and beyond anything I've ever done before. I'm super excited about it. I can see how it's being taken up in very mobile-centric markets, very advanced mobile markets like China, and how successful we're being there. And I know that that portends extremely well for our success in other markets. So our real focus is about geographically expanding our business, working with new partners. So you need to watch out. And if you're following us, you need to watch out for the deals that we do in new markets and how much of an impact that may have to the future growth and revenue in the business. Above and beyond the, the forecasts we have today, which are all predicated on deals we've announced. It's not, we're not talking about next year's revenue of 450 plus uh, and the year after over a billion dollars as being anything other than the deals we've already signed and announced. Those are all based on the deals we have today. So when we add a new deal or we make an announcement on a new deal, that's only going to increment those numbers. Yeah, it certainly is going to be fascinating and exciting to continue to watch Resolve as it, as it moves forward. And I think it's going to be a really interesting play out there as well, uh, as we've been discussing the way that Resolve has its feet in marketing and in e-commerce and in, in the cloud, um, and soon uh, crypto, as it sounds as well. So that's certainly a fascinating one to watch. And, and thanks so much, Stanford, for being on. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. And I'll I, I tell you, if, if you don't mind me saying, this is one of those moments that your listeners and your viewers will remember. This is one of those fantastic moments in business history. You're hearing this business at a moment of inflection, right at the beginning of an incredible journey. And okay, we've been on a journey to get here, but the journey is just beginning. The really exciting journey is just beginning. And that is us as a public company, you're gonna see fantastic momentum and growth over the coming years. This is a really fantastic success story in the making.